Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 149 called Krista K. Today's episode is presented by Belly. Belly offers modern prenatal vitamins optimized for fertility, prenatal, and post-pregnancy health. To learn more about how to optimize your fertility and pregnancy health, check out their vegan-friendly, dairy-free, non-GMO vitamins for both men and women at bellybaby.com. That's spelled B-E-L-I-B-A-B-Y.com. The best part, if you use code Alley 15 you'll get 15% off your first month of either Belly Women or Belly Men. Again, that's code Alley 15 ali 15 for 15% off. Thanks, Belly. All right, guys. So I'm so glad that you're here today. I have a very raw, pretty devastating story to share with you guys today. We're going to talk to Krista, who's a nurse, and she's going to tell us all about her infertility journey and the stillbirth that she endured just a handful of months ago. So I just wanted to let you guys know off the top that this one is, parts of it are hard to listen to and it's pretty raw, but the reason that I wanted to share this and all of these stories is because it's real and it happened and it happened to Krista and her husband and she wanted to share it because she thinks, she actually DM'd me, I'm going to read her DM. She says, not only do I think it would be helpful because I had a stillbirth and to provide a sense of connection community for other people with other losses, but I've also dealt with IVF and infertility, which adds another level of complexity to the loss. So like I said, this is not an easy one to listen to, but Krista's amazing and this is a real story and they're still you know, going through their journey and I'm just really honored that she felt like this was a safe enough space that she could share it in. And I know you will all appreciate her candor and her honesty. So if this one's not for you, I understand. But if you have anybody who has gone through this, please pass it along because this just doesn't get talked enough about enough. I'm flubbing my words because I'm it's so heavy. But anyway, thank you for being here. Thank you so much to Krista. And without further ado, this is Krista's infertility story. My friend Krista, it's so good to talk to you. How are you doing today? Doing pretty good. Thanks good. for having me. Of course. So I am very eager to get into your story. I don't know much about you. You know, we met through Instagram, but let's kind of just start at the beginning. Did you always want to be a mom? I did. I think it was kind of just something I assumed would happen. I'm the youngest of four kids and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And so that was kind of my my model, I guess. And so just growing up, I assumed I would have a family. So fast forwarding a bunch, when did you start to try? Tell me about that part of your story. Sure. Um, so I was trying to look back every at everything because as everybody knows, when you've been on an infertility journey, everything kind of blurs. And so um, totally. My husband and I met in 2010 and then got married in 2016. And we decided we wanted to wait a couple of years before having a family just to enjoy, you know, being married and experiencing that and everything. Um, and so it was around 2017 where we decided to actually start trying to have a family. 
but my husband, he is Jewish by birth and um, I converted myself prior to meeting him. So that's kind of another story, but um, Mm -hmm. so given his Jewish ancestry, he just kind of, it was an assumption that he would do some genetic testing prior to having kids just to make sure that there weren't any genetic diseases or disorders that we had to be aware of that are common with that ancestry. Okay. What do they look for? Oh, there's like, I think hundreds or something like dozens of things, but like there's cystic fibrosis Mm -hmm. and there's, um, oh my goodness, off the top of my head, I can't even remember one of the more common ones, but it's basic, like totally a a fatal disease for babies. Like, I don't even know if they survive, you know, pregnancy um, and then tend to die, but there's just a slew of different things that Mm -hmm. are more common, I guess, with that ancestry. So we did that. And that was through this, there's actual organizations that do this. It's called J screen. So he did that and turns out he was a carrier for congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Um, and so I did the screening as well. And it was a total like mind fucking shock that I ended up being a carrier for the same disorder. Mm, wow. And okay. It, yeah. And I think that was oh, like looking back, I don't think it affected him as much. But for me, that was just like very devastating for some reason, just because you're expecting, you know, as you talk about on your podcast, oh, all you have to do is stop having kids and it's just miraculously going to happen and everything's going to go perfect. And uh, yeah. Never and, goes as planned. Yeah, exactly. So that happened. And then so our for our next step, I guess, assumption was, oh, we'll just do IVF and um, not really like we expected it to be expensive, but I would say it was like twice as expensive as we were expecting. And so that kind of put a pause on things. Mm-hmm. And we decided to consult a whole bunch of or well, as many experts, I guess, in the disorder as we could, so we could better understand what it looks like. And so adrenal congenital adrenal hyperplasia is a disorder, it's a hormone disorder and it happens on a spectrum, which is what makes it so difficult because there's no way to predict like when you have a child, are they going to have it on like the least end of the spectrum or the most severe end? There's just no way of knowing. Okay. And I have the more severe mutation, I guess you could say. of the mm-hmm. two. Um, And so at, at the worst, the children can't, they have like, it's a salt wasting disorder. And so you have to have hormone replacements for the rest of your life because it can be fatal. And they actually test newborns for this disorder at birth Mm -hmm. um, because it's easily, I I guess I would say relatively easily treated, Okay, it would be terminal if it wasn't, wasn't caught. Got it. So did Um, they test all newborns and forgive me for not knowing this? I should. That's my understanding. Okay. I I mean, I have that stuck in my head for some reason that yeah. that is the case. Okay. Um, so, so yes, that's my understanding because like I said, it's easily treated. Um, and I want to say it's like one in a hundred thousand babies have mm-hmm. it or something like that. And it? so it's pretty, it's more common, I think, than people realize. So that's this, the end, like the most severe and then like kind of ma- like middle ground, I guess is it can cause infertility in children, like lower stature. Females can have more ambiguous genitalia. Mm -hmm. Um, 
which I think that kind of freaked us out as like having, you know, starting off having kids. And if you have a daughter and it, she yeah. looks more like she has masculine genitalia, you know, it's just scary for her when you're thinking of having kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and you want to start your kids off on the best foot as you possibly can. Right. So um, we consulted, like I talked with an endo- an adult endocrinologist, which was no help whatsoever. I like literally, it sounded like she was reading out of a textbook mm. about the information. I'm like, okay, I, like I can do that. I'm, I, I haven't mentioned this, but I'm a nurse by background, so I'll, you know I can look this information up myself. Right, of course, <laughs> have, a, have a decent understanding of it. Um, and then we finally consulted, excuse me, consulted with a pediatric endocrinologist, and that was a huge help and made us feel a lot more comfortable at the idea of trying naturally, and that it's just you know very treatable and not as severe as like reading it out of a textbook or online or whatever. Um, presents the information to be and so we tried naturally for a while okay and that's kind of a blur too because I know like looking back people are like oh we tried but we didn't really try or we tried ovulation kits and I vaguely remember using ovulation kits but I also looking back don't have confidence with them like I'm not sure like I, I almost questioned was I ovulating on like actually ovulating, like they had the smiley face ones and the ones where they're supposed to like shake or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And I never got where they like shook and it would be like several days where they would be smiley faces. And so I'm just not convinced. Not sure if it was absolutely (laughs) correct for you. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so did that and then weren't having success. And then we circled back around to IVF and that was after, it wasn't quite a year of trying it. By that time I was about 34, I want to say. And my husband was like, yeah, just talk to them. And we didn't have any problems with the IVF doctors taking us seriously. And I don't know if part of that is because we also have the disorder and had originally gone in there prior to fertility or just like, Hey, yeah, like the science of waiting a year isn't necessarily accurate or, or what be it. Yeah. Was the case though, that you didn't have insurance coverage, right? So that was part of the hesitation initially. I would say so. Yes. We yeah. Did not have I think a lot of so people can relate to that. If we had insurance coverage at the very beginning of this, we would have just gone straight for the IVF. I'm Got sure. it. And at that time we were even considering IUI because we were willing to try naturally And we were going to go that route. And before that, I took like one month of Clomid and that wasn't successful. And then just after further discussion, we're like, let's just go straight for IVF just because of, you know, the science and the rates of success on the IUI. And it takes like four times on average before you're successful, which is basically the same cost as IVF. We're like, let's just, if we're going to invest in this, let's just get it done. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so we were on the cusp of that, I want to say in the spring around like April-ish of 2019. So 2017 to 2019, you know, trying naturally, getting information about everything. Um, and then we were, like I said, right on the cusp of doing it. And then we had to hit pause because my husband and I needed to regroup on our relationship. I know you talk a lot about you know, the toll of everything. Yes. hundred percent. Yeah. And I don't, I think it was more than just the fertility for us. Just we we're, you know, young, 
communication communication is I <laughs> I think with most most relationships the biggest thing where we just weren't communicating well and so we needed to take a pause on things yeah. for each other work on our relationship we went to individual counseling because it was like definitely like crisis point at mm. that point and I think um, I was I was thinking back you know in preparation for us talking how much the fertility impacted things and I think for me it impacted things a lot mm-hmm. I'm not sure as much for my husband um, like I said, when I found out we were both carriers of congenital adrenal hyperplasia, that was like really rocked my world. And I think that was just kind of, I don't know, uh, almost the epitome of how much more I struggled with this than my husband. I think he's just very logical and like, oh, well, we'll do X, Y, and Z and this will happen. And so we definitely needed to regroup and come to terms with like how each of us approach life in general. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then how to make that work as a couple. And so we did individual or not individual. I'm sorry. I did individual counseling myself as well, but individual and then couples counseling just to kind of get us, you know, what do we both want out of our marriage? What do I want as an individual? And what, how do I want to bring that to our marriage? And then in 2020, it was around, it was in the fall because I had my retrieval in October we had 20 eggs that were originally retrieved. And then what the next day they said, 19 of them had fertilized, which, you know, you know, all the numbers you're like, Oh, this is great. And then it like drastically decreases. As yeah. Goes it's down. crazy how much it goes down. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, that's a mind fucking in and of itself. Because, yeah. Yeah. It's just, kind of devastating when you're going through this because you just want as many chances as possible. We went from 20 to 19 to 11. And then of those 11, five of them were chromosomally normal and were unaffected from our disorder. So on our disorder, you can either be affected, be a carrier or completely unaffected. And so Mm -hmm. we we had one, a boy that was completely unaffected And then the rest of them were of those five, the other four were carriers. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to say three girls and a boy. And then we have a variety of others that are like either have chromosomal abnormalities or are affected. So, I mean, in reality, there's, I think a couple of them that are chromosomally normal and affected that we could, if, if it came down to it, um, we could use those embryos. Right. Because we were considering that naturally anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're lucky enough to have enough options, at least at this point. But that in and of itself is terrifying too, because you're like, well, you know, things can happen. Not all transfers are successful. So at what point do you go through another retrieval? So then you did do the transfer, right? So we did do the transfer that was scheduled for January 28th, I want to say, 2021. Okay. That went well. We elected just to do one embryo transfer. My embryo, or not embryologist, my reproductive endocrinologist was very, I wouldn't say like forcefully, not like to me that like, hey, you should only do one, but he was very upfront and very forthright about his opinion that one is better than doing two, at least according to the science and, Mm -hmm. you know, all the 
associations and organizations and what they recommend just because of the risk of having multiples. And I would have been open to having two, but my husband was very against it because he's like, oh, we're investing all this money to have a successful, you know, healthy baby. Why are we going to impose more risk? So I was like, whatever, that makes sense. That makes Mm -hmm. sense. But you know, when you're going through this journey, it's like, you just want to be done too. And I don't think men who are along the journey with you can appreciate that quite as much because they're not having to deal with making the appointments, trying to coordinate around work, having to give the medications, just the stress. It's just, it builds and builds and builds. Yeah. And so it's definitely seductive to think, oh, I can just have two and be done with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but anyway, we did one transfer that went great. The um, two week wait wasn't horrendous. Um, I was working, I'm a nurse at a hospital. And so mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty good distraction. Like when you're at work, you're yeah, at you've work got your hands and, full with like real people that matter and yeah, doing, doing good work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good distraction. You're busy when you're at work and then when you're at home, you're just recovering. So, mm-hmm. but then of course, I'm, as everybody knows, you know, you're like, oh, I have this symptom and you're looking it up online and I'm having this cramping. Is this just like, from the transfer or is this implantation cramping and all of that. Totally. So that went well. And then, you know, you go in to get your beta screening or the lab work. And that day, my husband actually was going to be going out of town for work. And so we were on, I was literally driving him to the airport and we got the call and it was positive. And that was, we were just in shock and just completely thrilled. And you yes. know, you're, you're on a high at that time. And that was just awesome. But as, as I was saying earlier, like you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. So I never had, I always had the awareness that, that the transfer could fail. Like I mm-hmm. wasn't of the mind that, Oh, this is science and it's just going to automatically work. So like, I never imagined that something would go wrong, uh, but yeah. Yeah. But you always are just waiting for that shoe to drop. Yes, I know. So, yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately for us, that shoe did drop. Yeah. Um, and not like I ever expected it to. Right. Um, uh, you So all the ultrasounds afterwards went great. Um, ended up getting transferred to an OB outside of the clinic. Yeah. Isn't that strange when you graduate from the RE and like go to the regular OB? We were talking about this in our recent, we do a pregnancy and motherhood after infertility group with fertility rally. And so many of the women are like, I didn't want to leave the RE. Like you don't want that to leave that security blanket. You want the weekly monitoring and the weekly ultrasounds. And you know, when they're like, okay, off to the OB, you're like, wait, what? They don't know my whole story. They don't know what I've been through. It's, it's hard. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you, I mean, I can't speak to everybody. Everybody's like the length of their journey is obviously different, but like you develop these relationships that are years long. And as you said, they know your story, they know your experiences, where you're coming from. Um, And I think they have a greater appreciation for, for your experience because they know all that. So even if you bring that to your new OB, they're not immersed in that world. And so I don't know that they can fully appreciate what you've gone through to get where you're at. Right. 
mm-hmm. even when they're the best and like great, you know, doctors and staff and teams and all of that. But yeah, so that's obviously <laughs> a transition. So we transferred out and everything was going well, did, you know, all the ultrasounds, 20 week ultrasounds, even though we had all the genetic testing, our RE recommended that we still do any non-invasive testing. And then I was uh, 27 weeks and I was working at the hospital. It was a weekend. And when I'm throughout my pregnancy, I feel like everything was a little late for me somewhat. Like they say around like, is it as early as 16 weeks, 16 to 20 weeks that you can start feeling the baby move? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I was right around 20 weeks to maybe a little bit later. And I was also, it wasn't until the very end, like 27 weeks, well, maybe around like 24 to 27, where I was really starting to show at all. And that was like a teeny baby bump. Like I said, I'm like, I have wide hips and I was just carrying very low. Mm-hmm. You could just barely tell, like I was still wearing all my normal clothes at that point. And so I was working that weekend. And when I'm working as a nurse, you're just so busy, you're moving around a lot. Um, I never really felt the baby move a whole bunch. I did feel the baby move, but I think you're just so distracted. And then also they say like, you know, with your movement, you kind of rock the baby to sleep and that sort of thing. Right. So were you still feeling though, the anxiety and like the overall, like waiting for the other shoe to drop, like you said? Oh, that's a good question. I think... I think it was less so because Mm -hmm. I feel like you, you know, you feel like you've made it through all the main like milestones. And so I feel like my anxiety had definitely decreased by that point, but it's all a blur as to like when that really ended. And I don't think it was ever like ultra pervasive for me, Mm -hmm. um, but just kind of in the backdrop, right? Like stuff has already gone wrong. Like what else can go wrong sort of thing. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, and so I was working that weekend. And like I said, not really feeling the baby move. And that wasn't especially like abnormal for me, but like looking back. So I was, a, I was working a Saturday, Sunday, um, that Saturday, I woke up and I was like ultra tired. Um, like abnormally, I mean, yeah, you're pregnant, you're tired, but Mm -hmm. it was like an unusual tiredness. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like that was my body telling me something. Yeah. Was it like a red flag alert basically? I think in hindsight, but not something that you're aware of in the moment. Yeah. Um, and then worked all day. And like I said, didn't really feel the baby moving as much, but working distracted, that didn't seem abnormal. Um, went home and like, I go home and I'm maybe awake for an hour eating, getting ready for the next day and then going to sleep. So not really thinking too much of it. And then the next day back to work and, you know, that's in the back of my mind that I haven't really felt the baby moving like usual. Mm. And I had actually worked on a different unit the day before from the one that I was normally on, I floated to a different unit. And so what I had to, when I was talking earlier about like feeling the baby move, like when I was around like the 20 weeks or whatever, I was, like I said, it was a little later for me, but it was something that I was really paranoid about because I remember the doctor telling me about that. And during some of our discussions, she's also kind of like, 
hey, there's not much more I can do for you at this stage. It's you like paying attention to your body and the baby's movement sort of thing. So like when the baby's not starting to move, I'm starting to freak out. So I remember around that time I had gone to on a baby moon to Hawaii and then come back to work and I we have Dopplers on the on the floor. So they just like listen to the heart rates like yeah. them for pulses for like the wrists and the feet normally. But I popped that out and was like searching for the baby's heart rate. Yeah. Um, our heartbeat and found it. And so this weekend that I was working when I was back on the floor and on my morning break, I grabbed that um, and I was in the break room. And so I was trying to find the baby's heart rate or heartbeat and I couldn't find it, but I wasn't like especially worried about it. Yeah. Just because I know like, Hey, even though I'm a professional, they're still challenging to use sometimes. So I wasn't super worried, but, and Mm -hmm. I went back out to the floor and, um, my coworker who had gone through all the IVF herself was working that day as well, charging. And I was like, Hey, you know, I think I'm going to run by L and D later just to check things out. I haven't been feeling the baby move as much. Yeah. And so she actually called over there. I think she had like a friend who is an L and D nurse and just let me know what was going on. And they wanted me to come right over, which kind of surprised me. And it was a really stressful morning at work. So I was just like, I don't know if it was that, if my body was telling me something was going on. Yeah. But I remember just being um, very emotional on the walkover. Mm-hmm. Like prior to that, talking to a coworker before I was leaving and just like getting tearful and then walking. I They're separate buildings, although they're connected. So I had gone outside to walk to the building and I'm just like tearing up and I'm telling myself, oh, well, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. You're just like overreacting. And, My heart oh, is starting to race. <laughs> Krista, yeah. this is hard to hear. And I know it's hard for you to tell too. And so um, went over there and went into triage and there, you know, do the ultrasound and um, they're picking up a heartbeat, but which now I know was my own heartbeat and um, it would have been understandably like super low because, you know, the babies are supposed to be like 120, 160 between there or something and I don't know it was maybe like in the 70s at that time so she was and it's all kind of a blur on like the timing of stuff mm-hmm. on I know she asked somebody else to go get another ultrasound and in hindsight like I wonder of course they want to make sure you know and double check but I also know they have to have like a double like two different ultrasound machines to confirm no heartbeat. Yeah. Um, and she was like, she had said something like, we're going to have to take the baby now if this is the heartbeat, you know, this. And so then I'm like freaking out and of course. I'm looking at the machine and trying to like calm myself so that because my heart rate's escalating. So if they're trying to like find the heart rate and make sure like what is what, um, I don't want it to be convoluted or like them to be queuing in onto my heartbeat versus yeah, the babies. Completely. And at some point, um, I think at this point I call my husband and tell him that he has to come. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then the OB comes in 
and she's doing the ultrasound. And so at this point, I think I'm just like, they're going to take the baby early, Mm -hmm. which is terrifying. Still Um, super scary, of course. Yeah. And then she says that they didn't find a heartbeat. Mm. I'm so sorry. Thank you. So, and while this is happening, I have my husband on the phone, which is horrible. Mm-hmm. Like for him, to, I mean, it's horrible to hear, period. But to hear it on the phone, it mm-hmm. just sucks. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and luckily, um, we don't live far from the hospital. So he got there very quickly. Um, we're like 10 minutes from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, um, during all of this, you know, you're like, are you sure it's a that you don't find a heartbeat and double checking and all that sort of thing. And then, and they confirm it. So then the next step is you have to deliver, which is another mind fuck and not something you even think about. I mean, first of all, I guess backing up, like I never, I guess you hear about stillborn babies, but I don't think you really like connect the dots of like, how does that happen? Yeah. And so like we never, I mean, this was not something that we expected. Not at all. Right. I mean, you're thinking at this point, maybe before they weren't finding the heartbeat, like maybe the baby would be born and go to the NICU and all that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I guess I was hoping, I don't even know what I was hoping, you know, when I first go over there, like, I mean, my, I think you're just like shut down and numb. Mm-hmm. Or at least I was. So I wasn't even really going through like, oh, that maybe something is wrong. Like that never, it's like, may, you must think of it, right? Or you wouldn't be going in to get checked out. But like what that looks like, right. um, at least for me, it never came to mind. And maybe because it's too horrible to think of, or maybe because like as your podcast has shown, we just don't talk about any of these things. So you don't even know what the possibilities, right? Like that it's a possibility. Yeah. So um, they give us the option of you can either basically be admitted immediately um, or you can go home and get stuff ready and that sort of thing. And at that point, I just wanted to get it done. Um, Looking back, Oh, it makes me sad. Like, I remember thinking, I like, because you're thinking your baby's not alive anymore. And so, like, I just wanted my dead baby out of me. Yeah. But looking back, that makes me really sad because, like, he was still with me mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. I'm and so sorry, Chris. That's, thank you. And that's, like, all that you have, like, that time with them so yeah right right I mean how do you even decide that and you're probably in shock and you know I get it I totally get it I was completely numb I mean there were times where you cried but just the level of numbness and just like tunnel vision of like getting something done I think Mm -hmm. like you can't process at that point it's too too much Mm -hmm. to process so 
we decided just to get it done. I was already at the hospital, so I stayed there. And then my husband went back home to get some things for us to stay the night and all that sort of thing, which I guess just preparation. I mean, at that point, we didn't have, you know, a hospital bag or anything like that. I don't think we had any idea how long it would take, but just getting toiletries and I don't know, I wanted him to bring my own pillow and all that jazz. And had our, um, we actually had one of our neighbors take him back. So it was a neighbor who knew I was pregnant and knew our whole fertility journey. And so sharing what was going on with him and his family. And that's another thing that immediately comes to mind when something like this happens is like that you have to tell everybody, Mm -hmm. which is so, and that was really hard as well. I mean, actually it's hard, but this was July 18th or yes. 18th was when we actually went in. It was that Sunday. Um, But that 4th of July, every 4th of July, we have a family reunion and a whole bunch of like cousins and aunts and uncles get together. And we had just told everybody that we were pregnant. Yeah. And that also, I think, speaks to like brings up, I mean, obviously you have a dream and an image of what your life after having a baby is going to look like mm-hmm. once you're pregnant. But we were one of three, like this would have been one of three babies oh, in yeah. our family that year. So then you also have all those images and dreams of oh this is going to be another cousin of course Um, yes and it's so hard too as time goes on and you see those babies growing up and you think of what could have been and what you lost and that's really hard too yeah absolutely yeah so at least for me during all of this that was something that was forthright in my mind is now we have to tell everybody yeah and what do you even say how did you how did you tell people? Uh, well, I only, well, I told my charge nurse cause I was at work. So she, while, while I was in triage at this, she was like, Hey, how's it going? And I was just like, not good. And then I messaged her and she brought stuff over. So in terms of work, mm-hmm. I, I told her and yeah. just had her tell everybody. Yeah. Do you mind? And you don't have to go get into this, but just the process of, you know, you had to, had to give birth. And then did you get to spend time with him a little bit? Like, can, do you want to talk about that? And you don't have to at all. I promise. Like, no, no I can. Um, so uh, in some ways it was good, like a good birth in some ways, not so good. Um, so for me, so I was admitted, they um, put in an IV immediately and they got a whole bunch of blood work because they're trying to like prepare for trying to figure out what went wrong. So I swear it was like 10 vials of blood did that. And then they, so my OB wasn't um, laborist. So laborist is, you Mm -hmm. know, the OB doctor that's actually at the hospital, you know, continuously at that time. And then my OB doctor, it was, she's actually a family practice slash OB doctor. So they called her in. So my induction started, so they have to induce you because my body, I mean, I was 27 weeks. My body wasn't ready to go into labor. And even if you were more advanced, they still may have. I mean, that's another story for like, depending on where you're at, I guess, in your pregnancy. Yeah. Um, but I was induced at, at noon um, and they used, they started with misoprostol or miso. And so it's basically a vaginal suppository. It's a 
I guess, a, I want to say it's a cervical ripening type medication that they have yeah. to insert as close to your cervix as possible, um, which that in and of itself is traumatic a little bit in the sense that it's just so painful. I mean, it's a painful yeah. procedure and process. So like for me, at least for the majority of the time, at least while I was on that medication, you do start developing contractions. But for me, those were tolerable. I ended up getting pain medication exclusively at that point for the actual insertion of the medication because it was so painful for me. Um, and I consider myself to have a high tolerance for a pain. So on that medication, they have to, they give it every four hours, they insert it, you have to lay flat or lay still, not get out of bed for about an hour so that the medication doesn't become like out of position. And then it's every four hours. And at the beginning, they thought we, that I was advancing pretty quickly, but I think that was an error in their vaginal, you know, assessment mm. of the cervix and all that and the effacement of the baby. And in the evening, I think after like the second dose, my OB kind of tapped out because she felt like the positioning of the baby was such that she didn't have the expertise to deliver without potentially injuring him. Mm -hmm. um, so then the hospitalist or the laborist, I'm sorry, took over. And so like I said, I had four doses of that. And in the middle of the night, so um, uh, there was a couple things in the middle of the night. Like, I mean, they tell you that when you're getting close, you feel like you're going to have a bowel movement, all these sort of things. And then because the baby is so small, they're also worried about you going to the bathroom and they have mm -hmm. hats in there in case when you go to the bathroom, the baby basically falls out. Yeah. So like, I'm thinking of all these things. And then I think like also the process of just your body contracting and everything, everything inside in that area is contracting. So I was paranoid that I had like, am I getting close to laboring the baby, like having the baby? Do I just have to go to the bathroom? I started getting a temperature, like all of this at once. And when I get like overheated, I almost pass out. So like, I remember in the middle of the night, like almost getting close to like, between being overheated, nauseous, and pain, feeling like I was going to pass out. Oh, man. Um, and having to call the nurse. And like up until then, I was fine. And then once, you know, I got some pain medicine and nausea medicine, I was fine for a while. But then it just kept, because of this medication, it's a rare side effect, but you can develop like a fever and signs of an infection. So they were worried about that because I was, I did have a temperature. I had an elevated white blood count. Mm -hmm. um, so there was that on top of everything. So then they're starting to give me fluids and antibiotics. And then in the morning, they decided that they were going to try, they were going to switch me to Pitocin because the mesoprostol wasn't being effective after four doses. Mm -hmm. um, so they did that in addition to a manical, mechanical um, induction. So it's kind of like a urinary catheter, but they stick it up your cervix and they inflate like a balloon on either side with saline. And it's like when, once it came out, I was shocked because it's basically like the size of a Coke can. Wow. And, yeah. And for me, that was it. That was fine. Um, I guess that can be very, very uncomfortable for women. Um, but that was fine for me. It was more the Pitocin because as I understand it, it's, I mean, it, it causes you to contract, but unlike natural labor, there's an ebb and flow of contractions where there is some relief and there's no relief 
once you have the Pitocin and the contractions really start going. Right. Right. Um, So that was like, I've never had pain like that before. Like I said, I feel like I have a high tolerance for pain and my goal was always to have a natural birth. But at that point it was like so unbearable, like where you're just like fogging out. Um, and I got an epidural at that point, which was great. Um, (laughs) I had a really good epidural where I could still move my legs some, but the pain was completely gone. And then at, oh my goodness. So I gave birth, it was at like four o'clock. So it was like right before then, um, that the doctor and the nurse were like, Oh, let's check and see where you're at. And I remember having been in bed with my husband and then we were like cuddling in bed and just like talking and being close to each other. And I had my knees up a little bit and I kind of felt like maybe, I mean, they warn you basically that the baby can essentially fall out because they're giving you all these medications and the baby's so small. And I feel like I kind of felt something, but I wasn't sure. And I didn't ask, like, I don't know, like I remember remember this, but I guess I didn't maybe want to ask her. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but when they checked, I think he had already delivered. Mm. Um, and yeah, I don't remember off the top of my head. He was like a pound and 10 ounces or something. It's all a blur for me mm-hmm. at that point. Um, and we didn't know it was a boy. Um, so we found out it was a boy. Mm-hmm which I was super excited about. Like I had always wanted our firstborn to be a boy. Yeah. I mean, I would have been happy with whatever, but it was just, you know, if I could have had my way. Um, And that's another thing through all of this that like we had names picked out, Mm -hmm. but we didn't use, we didn't want to use those names, which I feel like when you say out loud and are trying to explain it, sounds kind of horrible to a certain extent, but, um, no, I don't, I get it. I understand. And especially where, because we're Jewish, um, we were wanting to do Jewish names, biblical names, and also family names if they could be incorporated. But at the same time, like I said, you don't want to necessarily use, like it's meant to be a blessing and like, not like it would have been, wouldn't have been a blessing for him to have a family name, but like you want it to uh, be instilled in life. Yeah, I understand. And, yeah, yeah. And so we had to come up with names um, and we chose Ezekiel Noah um, because Ezekiel means like with going up with God, basically being up with God. And mm-hmm. then Noah is peace. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, some of those things, not only is it a shock having to labor at this point, like yeah. not something you expect. I think my first thought was like, oh, I'm going to have a C-section, but no, you have to deliver your baby. Right. Um, and, and then you have to potentially come up with names if you haven't already, or I guess you don't have to, but we chose to. Right. Um, and then you also have to like, you don't think of it, but I guess after like 24 weeks, you have to either bury your baby or cremate your baby. Mm-hmm. So you have to get all of that preparation in place, which we are fortunate enough that my sister-in-law is a rabbi. And so she took on a lot of like the research for us on funeral homes and cemeteries and things like that. Cause there's, 
which I was going to say there's a Jewish way of doing those things, but then this is one of those situations because in, in Judaism, you don't, until the baby takes their first breath, they don't necessarily believe that there's a soul and that they're alive per se. Mm -hmm. And so basically all the traditions that normally you would follow are, you get to do what you want because this falls out of that. Right. Because he never took a breath. Yeah. Um, oh. So anyway, did, did you get to hold him? Yes. I was going to, yeah, we got to hold him. We stayed with him. We had him with us for about three hours or something. And we could have had him with us longer, but it's, well, it's once again, like in the moment, it was what was right for us. Um, Cause it's hard. Mm-hmm. And I think like my advice, of course, I, unfortunately, a lot of people don't come on to these podcasts. Sometimes like I came upon your podcast after the fact, trying to find some solace yeah. and everything. So you don't necessarily know what to expect in the moment, but just things you regret. Like yeah. we, we got to wash him mm. and hold him, but mm-hmm. like we didn't. Like I never thought to bring up a a blanket for Mm -hmm. him Mm -hmm. for like pictures. Um, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have done pictures if not for my husband. I I mean, once again, you're like numb and in a fog and you don't even know what to do or what to think, but we got pictures. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, I mean, they're wonderful pictures, but he's like wrapped up in a hospital towel which makes me sad. Right. You wish you would have been in some sort of blanket or something. Yeah. Yeah. And that we would have washed him sooner. Like we held him for like a couple hours and Mm -hmm. I think they took him out at one point and brought him back in and um, then they were going to help us wash him. And we decided to do that by ourselves. But like, I wish I had done that sooner because by then, I mean, unfortunately um, he's, he was dead. And so the body is naturally changing yeah because of that and so yeah. I just wish that we had washed them sooner and had them in like a blanket for pictures um because that's all you have right oh it's so hard yeah thank you so much for sharing all of this I know it's not easy you know when you reached out to me on Instagram we kind of went back and forth right you weren't sure you wanted to share but it was like so yeah. soon and so raw, if you don't mind, can I read part of the message, one of the messages that you sent me? Because I thought it was so just well said about why you wanted to do this and talk about it. Yes, Um, please do. So you said, not only do I think it would be helpful because I had a stillbirth and to provide a sense of connection community for other people with other losses, but I've also dealt with IVF and infertility, which adds another level of complexity to the loss my loss is also fresher and more raw. And as someone who had a recent loss, I feel it's helpful hearing from other people who aren't as far removed from a loss because it validates your feelings and experience. And you don't feel crazy for the rawness of your emotions and expertise. It makes me cry just reading that, you know, this is, it's such a sad thing for someone to go through and it's so hard. And I'm just grateful for you for sharing that because I know that you're helping people by talking about this today. So, and I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. And 
thank you for um, having a platform where, you know, couples, women can share about their fertility journeys, which yeah. include, as we know, you know, miscarriage and stillbirth and of course. Um, yeah, validate those experiences. And like, for instance, like my anxiety was off the roof after um, all of this happened. Like I've always yeah. been a high stress person, but like, I don't know, this, it changes you. Like fertility is of its course. own level of, you know, stress and hell and then miscarriages and stillbirths and that loss and um I think most of us have lost someone in our lives usually you know by adulthood and so we have that kind of as the template for what loss looks like but this is I've learned unlike anything I've ever experienced it's it's very different because it's not only the loss of a child but uh, like unmet dreams. Um, and you, I mean, when you go through infertility and all of this, or I guess it doesn't matter, but I think at least with my story, especially because of that, like the baby is wanted so much. So let's go back to, you know, you got to hold him and wash him and take, take pictures. I mean, that moment that you have to say goodbye, just, it's gotta be crazy devastatingly crushing like and then you leave you did you get to stay in the hospital did you have to go home I um so I wanted to leave as soon as possible so pretty much at the very beginning of when this all started like you know like when I was being admitted I was like how soon after this can I leave because I wanted to be in my own space and you know my safety zone I guess comfort zone um So he was delivered at four and we stayed with him for about like three or so hours. And then, um, we, I was lucky enough to be discharged at eight that night. So like the same night within hours. Um, and I think, I mean, part of that was because I wasn't bleeding. I didn't have any complications and I was a nurse, uh, and my husband's also a nurse. And so I think they just, and I, I would expect also our situation, they can just understand that you need to cope with this however you need to but either way I was lucky enough that they were very supportive of that and so we did that and I don't really remember them like taking him out of the room when we were still there but I do remember and I I kind of regret this like I had wanted to say goodbye to him before Mm -hmm. and we left the hospital like walked out and my husband had commented about how like crushing it is that you expect to be leaving with a baby mm-hmm. and that that wasn't the case for us. And I almost like that made me think, oh, I wanted to go say goodbye to him. And I almost turned around and went back and I wish I had, but it is what it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So that's how that was for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just, you know, that drive home and you're just numb at that point and exhausted because you yeah. haven't slept the entire time. So. Right. And I imagine you're like, did that just happen? How, how the fuck did that just happen? Like what in the actual hell is happening? You know, like, yeah. 
you're always kind of looking, I don't want to say for the silver lining, but I remember like you're hopeful as you're being induced that, oh, maybe he'll actually cry. Yeah. Um, or once you're home, I would say for at least the first month, maybe, uh, I don't know. I took off, I'm in um, Washington state. And so we have um, family like leave for when you have a baby or you adopt. And so I qualified for that leave. So I was lucky enough to have, um, you can have up to, I think, I think up to 16 weeks off. I had, I want to say like 12 weeks off or something like that. Mm -hmm. But throughout that time, I remember at times like laying in bed, it's almost like phantom kicks. Like Uh. you're kind of, I don't know that I actually ever felt it, but like, I, you know, you just remember laying in bed and having your hand on your stomach and feeling the kicking. And so that doesn't just go away. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So like stuff like that, that you never, I guess you're not prepared for. Um, we were fortunate enough, although unfortunately, and you'll know what I mean, like when you're part of this gang, right? Like it's like the best girl gang, but it's for the worst reasons ever. Um, we have a friend who their baby died during or like closely after delivery due to like a medical error. And so I don't know the details of their story and I haven't asked, but um, obviously we're friends. And so I reached out to her pretty like once I was home the next day. And so I got connected with some local resources, um, like support groups for women and and couples and families who have um, had miscarriages or stillbirth, like Mm -hmm. perinatal or infant losses. She connected me with somebody who lives close to me who had a similar loss, like around the same time who I texted with some. Yep. Um, and then there's Star Legacy. It's a national organization that I get got connected with that I really like. And they do support groups um, pretty much weekly. It's like the first and third Monday and then like the second and fourth Thursday or something like that. Yeah. And those have been great supports for me. And then podcasts and yep. reading books. And I'm a talker. But that's also one thing that's really hard about um this is like when you're numb, it feels so wrong and you're so raw, but like you just can't find the words to express how horrible it is. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like you just want somebody just where you can just be like, this fucking sucks. Yeah. And for anybody who has family members, friends, whoever, or yourself, you're going through this at any point. Like for me, at least, I think besides getting connected to all of that, whatever that looks like for you, like people cooking for you or take out, like those are things that are most helpful. And you don't know what to ask for during all this. You're so numb. Like it's just, you're just surviving at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say like those tangible things, because you just, you don't want to do that stuff. You're just in the thick of grief. You don't want to take care of anything. Right. So like flowers, I think our go-to, you know, and our culture is flowers, which are beautiful. And we got some of those, but like, it's not really, 
it's like the cooking, the food, things like that, that was really helpful. And kind of along those lines, what we elected to do, and my husband had started setting this up when we were in the hospital, is he also knew um, someone from nursing school who him and his wife, they had a baby who had some kind of terminal anomaly. I think it was like some kind of maybe like a heart defect, something like that. Um, And so the baby died soon after birth and they had found this organization that basically in third world areas like India and places in Africa, they do a water well for fresh water. And so we elected to do that and ask that friends and family, instead of buying flowers, that they would contribute to um, that organization for us. It's like a water project. That's awesome. Kind of as a way to continue give to give life. Yes. I love that. That's so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So finding ways to kind of just get through it. I mean, what you said about community, like nobody needs to go through any of this alone. So yes, definitely reach out and find your people. Before we wrap up, is there anything that you want to add? You know, you gave amazing resources and ideas of how people can reach out, but just just maybe some words for somebody who you know, might be, have gone through this and is looking to connect or, you know, someone who knows somebody that this same thing happened to you? Well, I would say just letting them know that you're there. And at least in terms of people who are helping support people, uh, at least taking it upon yourself to reach out continuously to people. Because I think one thing that has been hard going through this is it's like, people approach it like any other type of death or grief where I feel like people are really there for you the first like couple weeks and then it just like tapers off. Mm -hmm. But this is, like I said, a grief and a loss unlike any others, like even having experienced other deaths in the family, at least for me, it's just not comparable. Yeah. And when you're in it, it's so hard to reach out and just having people just text you, reach out to you and just say like, Hey, I'm thinking about you. That in and of itself is enough giving people the opportunity to share their story. Mm -hmm. Cause I think for me, it's, everything's bittersweet, but it's like, I still labored. Like I still want to share like that story Mm -hmm. um, and what that experience was like for me. Um, giving people the opportunity to, you know, share their story, share their experience, not ignoring, like, I know people are afraid to say the wrong thing. um, But making space to let people talk about, you know, their babies, um, Mm -hmm. using their names, not just ignoring it, because you're uncomfortable, like that always quite frankly, that really pisses me off because it's like, you're uncomfortable. Well, my baby died. So like, you don't have any idea what uncomfortable is like. Yeah. You can deal with your uncomfortable. I'm having to deal with it every day. Absolutely. So I would say like, I know that's not very compassionate or patient. That's okay. It's real. It's real. (laughs) And we're all about being real. Yeah. And, and also for anyone who's going through it, I mean, and anyone's welcome to reach out to me. Um, my, I've reached out to hospitals or the hospital I was at just because when you're in this, you don't know what to do. You don't know what to expect. You don't know Definitely. like how to optimize your time. 
Sure. And so if there's any questions, I'm more than willing to answer them or just support other couples who have been in a similar situation or are in the thick of it. Um, it does get easier. I think that's hard to believe when you're in the thick of it. And it looks very different for everybody. I've been fortunate enough where even though this is understandably still very painful, I feel like I'm doing very well, mm-hmm. but everybody goes at their own time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like my husband and I are looking at as soon as we can, we want to start again with IVF. We, unfortunately, another piece of this is we had an autopsy and that can take up to like six months mm-hmm. for the results. So, so you haven't on. gotten the results back yet? No, we were told that October and then it keeps getting pushed back because oh. um, they had to have a second pathologist look at the placenta. Right. And that's a whole other story of like having to go through all the specialists, trying to get answers after the fact, Mm. which once again, I can help support and like direct people on that just because I'm fortunate enough having been a nurse to know like what my rights are Mm -hmm. and, and to have an idea of how I can navigate that process to get information or get answers to questions. For instance, like I had lab results, but the maternal fetal medicine wouldn't even see me for three months after birth. Like that's, they just literally will not even make an appointment. And I was having none of that. So how to navigate, like exploring alternatives and things like that. But like, you have a right to have answers. There's no right or wrong, like timeframe. I mean, for my husband and I, we wanted to start as soon as we could. And that's not to replace Ezekiel, but just... When you're ready to have a family, you're ready to have a family. Of course. And that doesn't go away. Um, yeah. And, and on the flip side, some people want to, you know, need to wait a year, two years, what be it. Maybe they're never ready and that's okay too. Okay. Woo. I'm getting a little emotional. Um, myself, even though I've heard this story a couple times now, but I hope that you guys got something out of that. If anybody has gone through a stillbirth or a loss like that, I'm so, so sorry. I I really think Krista was great in articulating what they went through. And, you know, like she said, you can reach out to her. She is on Instagram and her handle is Krista, C-H-R-I-S-T-A-M-V-17 on Instagram. So she's happy to connect with you guys. And I am happy to connect with you always as well. So you can always reach out to me on Instagram at infertile AF stories. You can also reach out to me through fertility rally, which is our membership community. If you want to go to kick-ass weekly support groups with dozens of other women each week who are going through a myriad of issues but are there for you no matter what please join our family we would love to have you it's the place I wish I had when I was in the thick of it and it means the world to me so thanks again for listening thank you so much to Krista I'll talk to you guys next time